All right. Can we pray together for a moment? Lord, open our eyes to, to see you. Open our ears to hear you. Open our mouths to praise you. And open our hearts to feel your love and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm so excited to be here tonight with you all. It's, all, it's um, it a very humbling for Father Joe to ask me. So, um, and I'm excited to talk with you about a topic that has been kind of a thread through my life. Um, I, mean, I would say particularly over the past, probably past maybe 10 years, it's been... Um, Relevant, and that is the topic of reconciliation and how reconciliation can bring us closer to God and how reconciliation can make a more meaningful lift. And so I want to preface, preface my words by saying we're going to talk about what it means to be reconciled to God, what it means to be reconciled with others. When I get to the part about being reconciled with others, I don't, I, I took real care to make sure this didn't sound preachy. <laughs> because the reason I want to share this with you is because it's been so meaningful to me. So please receive it in that light. Um, I'll be sharing some experiences with you, some passages from scripture, and um, just really how important I think it is to reconcile us, ourselves to each other. Okay, so we're going to talk about, we're going to have some scripture, we're going to have some tangible ideas, personal experience. So we're right in the middle of Lent. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. How many of us have um, maybe not been successful at our Lenten disciplines? Okay. Get that out of the way. Um, so Lent is a season, can be a season of tension, maybe. We live into the tension between what we know is going on now and what is God's reality. The already and the not yet of Christian hope. Lent reminds us both of who we are and who God is calling us to be. Lent is the perfect time to grow closer to God through reconciliation. The word reconciliation means simply a restoration of friendly relations or the repairing of a relationship. As Christians, we are reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. We are called through a ministry of reconciliation to tell others of the good news, to share the gospel. Our response to this ministry and our response to our reconciliation with God must be to pursue reconciliation in broken relationships with others. So let's look further into what it means to be reconciled to God and what it means to be reconciled to others. We need reconciliation with God because our relationship with him was broken. And we all know when that happened originally. In the garden, Adam and Eve was broken. And from that point on, at its center, the Bible 
was a story, it was a love story. And it was a reconciliation story. God was so intent on being reunited with us that he was willing to take the penalty for our disobedience. Jesus reconciled us to God. It's important to know that. It's important to know that we cannot reconcile ourselves to God. We just can't. Jesus is the one that reconciled us to God. And we celebrate that coming up in a few weeks. Actually, we celebrate that throughout Lent, I believe. And reconciliation lies at the heart of the gospel for that reason. So one way we can respond to God's great love for us is to invite others to discover what it means to be reconciled with God. This is the ministry of reconciliation. You might have heard a little about that this past Sunday. Um, I'm going to kind of retouch on the verse from 2 Corinthians that was the epistle for this past Sunday. And so let me read that really quick. And hopefully I won't be duplicating Father, Joe, Father Joe's sermon. So. Okay. All right, so 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God made his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot in that passage. Um, there's some daunting um, charges in there. We are ambassadors for Christ. Um, that, that's a little... That, that, nah, I'm saying this from of someone who's only been ordained a month. That is... <laughs> um, that's a little bit um, frightening. <laughs> um, but we are. We all are. As Christians, we're ambassadors for Christ. He uses us to tell the world that we can be reconciled to God through Christ. Jesus' death made this possible. God reconciled the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And we are to tell people about this. That they have been made right and they have the opportunity 
in Christ to be made right with God. Jesus is the one who saves. We know that. Yet, we have been given the privilege of being the ambassadors. We implore others to believe in Christ's death and resurrection. And so Paul says that this ministry of reconciliation has not come from us. He didn't wait, God didn't wait for us to decide to come home before he wiped the slate clean. We did not need to ask for Jesus to come to us. In his love, God chose to send Jesus to take on our nature, sharing in our humanity, <clears throat> excuse me, so that we could become the righteousness of God. So rather than seeing our lives as primarily about our own comfort and well-being, we instead see that God has given us this ministry to restore broken relationships to wholeness. And so, our reconciliation with one another has its biblical foundation in the atonement of Christ. I want to start with my section with reconciliation with others with a story. And this is a story that's not easy for me to tell, but it kind of gives you a clue as to why reconciliation has become so important in my life and why I began it as a Lenten discipline. So three years ago, three or four years ago, um, you know, we were coming up to Ash Wednesday and I thought, well, I really need to think about no Lent, and for probably the past 10 years, I've, I've added something instead of taking something away. You know, I tell myself that um, that's the admirable thing, admirable thing to do, but then I think maybe it's the weak thing to do because I just don't want to give anything up. So, whatever the case, I take, have taken on disciplines. One year I took on um, the discipline of accepting help. And relishing in that help, I'm kind of an independent person. It's hard for me to accept help. So that was my Lenten discipline. This particular year, I had a relationship that was strained. Well, I don't think it was broken. I don't believe it was broken, but it was strained. Um, and it was with someone who had been a mentor to me for many years, um, through thick and thin, and I had perceived that I had disappointed this person. And one thing I am superly not proud of is that if I feel like I've disappointed you, you probably won't hear from me or see from me for a while. Because that's my shame. That's my shame coming through. And I'm okay admitting that. So I just cut myself off from this person. She called and texted a few times, and finally she stopped, and I don't blame her. I probably would have done the same thing. And so Lent came around, and, and this was weighing heavy on my heart, and I said, this Lent, I'm going to resolve to reconcile my relationship with my mentor. And so I said, that's what I'm going to do. It might take me all of Lent, but that's what I'm going to do. And so, 
Ash Wednesday came around. I'm ready to go. Well, let me just tell you, this sounded great on paper. Um, I knew the first step needed to be a phone call. Not an email, not a text, a phone call. So after about a week, I made the phone call. She didn't answer. Yes. I got got her voicemail. Oh, this is perfect. So I left this message. I've missed you. I'm sorry I've been out of touch. Would love to catch up with you. Please call me back when you get a chance. Oh, this is great. The ball's in her court. Perfect. So I waited a day, another day, a week. I thought, wow, I really underestimated how much I've disappointed this person. So I thought, oh, I guess I need to make another phone call. Not an email, <laughs> not a text, a phone call. So I did. I said, hey, um, I know you're busy. I would love to hear from you, catch up. Maybe we can go to lunch. Um, Give me a call back or at least shoot me a text and let me know how you are. Great. It falls in her court again. So (laughs) about 45 minutes later, I got a text, and it was my friend. And she said, I miss you. I love you. I haven't responded to you because I've had a death in my family. And I felt, I went from feeling really good about myself for attacking my Lenten discipline to about this tall. So, to wrap it up, we did end up getting together. We had lunch, we reconciled, and this maybe was the most meaningful Lent that I could have had. And I realized that not all relationships have that happy ending. Um, unfortunately, they don't. And in those cases, I say it's great to have a third party. And we've got one. We've got one. And God. So, that's why this is important to me. So let's go on and remember what I said. I'm not preaching. I'm sharing. <laughs> okay? All right, so the call to reconciliation, it really extends beyond our relationship with God, but but it really doesn't. It impacts our relationship with one another. Life is just better when everything is okay. We're at peace with one another. The living in agreement and fellowship serves another purpose, too. It reinforces the validity of our reconciliation with God. It allows us to become more like Jesus in the way we relate to others. I think we all have experienced a time when we've had a strained relationship or a disagreement with someone else and something that's kind of hanging out there that that we know really needs to be resolved. Most of the time, we work out our differences and move on. However, Sometimes we don't. And either try to forget about it, or we hold bitterness and anger toward the other person. God has provided us with clear guidance on how to resolve these issues. And they're both in the book of Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 5, and Matthew chapter 18. These are two of the most important biblical, biblical passages on dealing with relational breakdown. Let me read the first one to you. This is Matthew 5, verses 21 through, 20, through 24. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches us what it means to live as his people. We shouldn't walk around being angry with each other. He drives home this point by comparing that to murder. It's no good sitting back and saying, well, I haven't physically done them any harm. If we harbor anger and dish out insults, the intent of our heart is evil. Reconciliation must always be the goal. In this context, Jesus addresses his command to those who have wronged someone else. If you are offering your gift and you remember that you have something against you, leave it there and go be reconciled. When we know we've hurt someone, it can be easy to sit back and wait for that other person to act. If she has a problem with me, let her come and sort it out. <laughs> or perhaps our shame gets the best of us and we can't admit our fault. Let's put a pin in that for, just, for later. We'll come back to that. Perhaps we assume that the other person will not want to hear from us or that the damage is too great to repair. Jesus' instruction is clear. Don't make excuses. Instead, seek out the person you've hurt, make the first move, and do all you can to reconcile. Now the verse from Matthew chapter 18, actually verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, let's, let's just be honest. I know for me, when someone stands against me, I can find countless ways to compound their error with sin of my own. I can start to assume the worst and to read evil into all their actions. My therapist calls this catastrophizing. <laughs> catastrophizing, yes. 
We've had that discussion before. Um, I can sulk, or we can sulk quietly, nurturing bitterness and resentment, perhaps even beginning to lash out at others. We can play the martyr. And forget that we're imperfect sinners who've hurt people too. We share our hurt and pain with friends. We gossip. We claim the moral high ground and say, they did the wrong thing. Let them make the first move to sort it out. Wonderfully and mercifully, Jesus gives us the alternative. If we begin by approaching the person who has wronged us, if they see their fault, that's the end. Their repentance and our forgiveness can bring reconciliation. If, however, they don't see their fault, the goal should not be to embarrass, take revenge, or air dirty laundry. The goal is genuine reconciliation. What may be most striking about our two passages is this. No matter which side of a relational conflict you are on, whether you have wronged or you have been wronged, it is always your responsibility as a Christian to restore, to seek to restore the relationship. Only through God's help, I believe, can it be restored. It is always your responsibility to seek to restore the relationship. This is where I was talking about not being preachy. I promise. <laughs> this is not a contradiction. This is Jesus living in the real world, addressing real relationships where we can all tend towards standing up for our rights and letting someone else sort out the problem. Jesus says no matter where your broken relationships, no matter how you arrived at this point, step up. Take the initiative and seek reconciliation. <sighs> Sounds good on paper. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, the third party that helps us for sure. So in Paul's letter to Philemon, did I say that right? Philemon. He gives us a framework for reconciliation. The circumstances of this letter are messy. Yet, it provides us a beautiful picture of how to seek reconciliation in the midst of a mess. And don't we all know too well about messes? <laughs> Paul's a prisoner and writing a letter to Philemon, a slave master, about Philemon's thieving and runaway slave, Onesimus. Paul appeals to Philemon to forgive his slave and no longer view him as a slave, but a brother in Christ. And through this letter, we see some very human qualities which I think, in my experience, can all aid toward reconciliation. And three of those are humility, empathy, and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is not a human quality, um, yet very important to remember in this case. 
So Paul practices patience. He takes time before asking anything of Philemon. He lays a foundation before he even mentions the runaway slave. He informs Philemon of his own love for Christ and then his love for Philemon. Let others know your love for Christ and your love for them first. Paul doesn't demand and doesn't attempt to control Philemon. He appeals to him. In verse 8 of the letter, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So he's saying, I know that God gives me the authority to say this, and I want to appeal to you at that human level. He knows that love must be present for true reconciliation, but love can't be compelled. It can't be forced. So let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about humility. The kind of humility that Paul shows in this letter is a key part of reconciliation. A significant reason that many of our broken or strained relationships go unrepaired is that both parties feel like they've been wronged and they want to see justice before they're willing to seek reconciliation. Our society, I think, leads us to that. We want justice before reconciliation. The Bible teaches that when we approach someone else with a problem, we should do it in a spirit of humility. Our motivation should be to communicate the problem in a way that attacks the problem and not the person. This communicates grace. This communicates love to the other person and a willingness for us to restore the relationship. It communicates humility. In addition to this, we must be willing to ask for forgiveness and forgive if asked. I want to take a little um, detour here for just a second and talk about forgiveness because forgiveness and reconciliation can be confused, um, but they're not the same thing. In order to achieve, to achieve reconciliation, you have to start with forgiveness. And doesn't Jesus show us that on the cross? Um, forgiveness has to be first. Forgiveness has to be first. To forgive means that we give up our right to enforce justice when we've been wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I like the sound of that. <laughs> Our motivation to forgive is based on the fact that God forgives us of our sins and removes them from our account when we confess our sins to him. Even when our criteria for deserving forgiveness isn't being met. Hmm. We live in a society that tells us all about criteria for forgiveness, doesn't it? Well, that person, you don't need to forgive them. They did something awful. We should probably forgive this person because, yeah, we get those mixed messages all the time. I like to call this the cost 
of being right. What does that mean? Something that um, Jeff and I talk about a good bit. <laughs> I told him I might throw him under the bus tonight, so he's, he's cool with it. Um, the cost of being right. What does that mean? The cost of being right. I know I'm right. I'm right. I don't care what you say. I'm right. Well, maybe you are. But is it worth the cost of your relationship to be right? Again, our society tells us this. All you have to do is get on, let's watch the news, or get on, heaven forbid, which I do too much, Facebook. Get on social media. I'm right. You're wrong. I don't care if we don't have a relationship anymore. That's the cost of being right. Is it worth it? Paul reminds Philemon of the gospel. He reminds Philemon multiple times that he is a child of God, a brother in the Lord, and a recipient of grace. He has received abundant love, forgiveness, and grace in Christ. And this matters for his relationship with Onesimus. Remember the gospel, Philemon. It frees us, but it also binds us. Hmm. Empathy. Paul considers Philemon's state of mind. There is empathy here. The patience Paul exercises is out of care for him. Empathy is the ability to set aside our own personal thoughts, feelings, and agendas in order to better understand the feelings of another. It is a characteristic of a compassionate heart. One of my favorite authors and motivational speakers has written volumes about empathy, um, and this is Brene Brown, and she says, Empathy has no script. There is no right way or wrong way to do it. It is simply listening, holding space, withholding judgment, emotionally connecting, and communicating that incredibly healing message of you're not alone. Empathy is the antidote to shame. Empathy is the antidote to shame. Now, we can look back at this and say, was Paul really showing empathy? Maybe. Maybe not. I think he was. Um, empathy is something that, during my time, my studies and my time, working in chaplaincy was something we spent a lot of time on. And I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole right now, but I, I want to make sure that we understand the importance of, of empathy in any relationship. And I can use an example just from visiting patients in the hospital. Um, I 
I'm someone who tries to find some kind of common ground, something in common with anyone I meet. Because I feel like that's the beginning of a connection. And there were times, and there are times, that I walk into a hospital room and I can't find that. This person is, for whatever reason, is so different, has such a different story, that I don't, I can't find it. But I know I need to find it. And so, what works for me are two things. The first thing is focus on that person's humanity. Because after everything else, you peel everything else away, you're both humans. You both have felt pain at some point in your life. You know what that feels like. Use that. Use that. And if you're with one of your Christian friends or a non-believer, use that. Use your faith in God or use the opportunity to talk about your faith in God with someone else. That's how we can build up that commonality between us. The second thing is something that um, the author Bob Goff says in probably several of his books, but I remember it in one of them specifically. He says, if you can't love somebody... Love them 30 seconds at a time. If you're struggling with someone, love them 30 seconds at a time. Because um, we're called to love. We know that. Sometimes it's hard. Love them 30 seconds at a time. I don't think I'll ever forget that. That's a pretty good one. So Paul, let's get back to Paul. He understands people. Paul is... I think, one of the best at reading a room. And the thing that's comical about that is he was really never in the room. (laughs) He was writing. Paul could read a room. Paul knows his audience every time. He can understand people. He takes Philemon's feelings and concerns in mind. He remembers the other person. Often it can change our approach to a situation when we consider how the other person might view it. That's empathy. Look at the humanity. If nothing else exists, we have commonality in humanity. Now the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to attempt to explain the Holy Spirit tonight. Why not? <laughs> um, we'll let Father Jim Father Trent. So Paul remains confident and hopeful about Philemon's response. This may be the most difficult part of reconciliation. Going back to kind of to my first story, whether we are attempting to help others or we need it in our own lives, we can often think, why even bother? I don't know if they'll respond. I don't know if I deserve a response. But this doesn't occupy Paul's mind. He is hopeful because he knows the power of Christ's love at work in a man. He knows the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives believers the power to live like Jesus and be bold witnesses for him. Has anyone ever... And you don't have to raise your hand. It's more rhetorical. But 
had an experience where you absolutely 100% know that the Holy Spirit was present. And that maybe the Holy Spirit is what pushed you, gave you the nudge to do something important. I've had that experience. Um, I had a, years ago in my previous life, I had um, kind of a difficult situation with an employee. And the employee was probably about this close to not being an employee anymore. And um, it wasn't my place to do that, but it was my place to help the boss determine that. It's not really a good place to be. Um, so I spent a lot of time reflecting on it. Um, and I don't know, well, I do, I do know now what it was. It was the Holy Spirit. I got up from my desk and just went in this person's office and sat down and said, I, I want you to tell me what's going on. I had no intentions of doing that. No plans. I was going to present my data, wrap it up, and go home. Tell me what's going on. That was the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt. Nowhere did it enter into my mind to do that. It was the Holy Spirit. Now back then, did I know that it was the Holy Spirit? Probably not. Just thought it was a great idea. Maybe I had. <laughs> but now I know. It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us by peeling away our sinful characteristics and replacing them with godly characteristics. He works in us to make us more and more like Jesus. He brings us closer to others. If we draw near to the Holy Spirit, He can place love in our hearts for our brothers and sisters, and we will be compelled to reconcile. So I want to touch on one more thing that is not in the letter from Paul, but I think it's important when we talk about reconciliation, and that's listening. Listening is one of the easiest things you'll ever do and one of the most difficult things you'll ever do. I did a listening exercise recently with a group, and I challenged them to split apart in twos for five minutes. One person was the speaker, one was the listener. No interruptions. Listen for five minutes. Five minutes can seem like a long time. It can seem like a long time to talk and a long time to listen. But the purpose of that was to was for the listener to feel heard. Yeah. The speaker to feel heard. And the listener to practice the art of listening. True. Sustained listening is a great act of faith and a great means of grace, both for ourselves and for others. It is a gift. Listening shows concern by action rather than words. Poor listening rejects. Good listening embraces. Dietrich Bonhoeffer the author and theologian wrote, 
this. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. Listening communicates human care, which demonstrates divine care. Listening is a great means of grace. So when you look at going into reconciliation, I would love for you to think about humility, empathy, the power of the Holy Spirit, and listening. Those are all things that can help guide us toward mending a strained relationship. Or if you can't mend it, give it to God. If you can't mend it, give it to God. He's there. So for the remainder of this Lent, let's look for the way God is making all things new. Let's look again at our relationships, especially the ones that might be painful. Let us pray for grace and try to show ourselves grace for the mistakes we have made. Let us remember how, through Jesus, we are reconciled to God. And let us bring others to a relationship with Jesus through that ministry of reconciliation. And let us be examples of God's love by working to reconcile strained or broken relationships in our lives. Because in the end, the meaning of Lent is not about crossing something off our spiritual to-do list. It is about how we draw closer to God and how He has drawn closer to us. Amen. Amen. I, ooh, five minutes. I am happy to take any questions, um, comments, my pleasure. You're welcome. Was it too preachy? A little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, I couldn't help but think of
committees to meet with, both here and at the diocese. There was um, school. There was chaplaincy training, which I ended up doing for a year because of COVID. Um, there was an internship. There were more meetings. How did you go to school? Um, we, for about a year and a half, went to Camp Week once a month on a Saturday. We were there all day, and we had mentors from around the diocese. So we had different priests and deacons from around the diocese that came and taught us different things. We had um, scripture, theology, little preaching, um, church history, congregational systems, pastoral care, But very intense. A lot of paper writing. <laughs> Would you change anything about the process? <laughs> no. Somebody asked me this question. Have you were you ever asked to do anything that you disagreed with? And I, I can't come up with anything. But looking back, it's all been just as God intended it. And I wouldn't trade it for, for anything. Does that answer your question? All right. Two minutes. Anybody else? Thank you all so much for listening. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. job. Thank you so much. And uh, that's going to be preaching May, May 1st. So May 1st. May 1st. So you should come to church before then, but um, <laughs> you also come then. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God. And of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you. Remain with you always. Amen. Give us the deacon's dismissal. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.